turn with me over to Exodus chapter 18. That's right. This is about Jethro, uh, who is Moses' father-in-law. Not to be confused with the most famous Jethro of all, exactly, Max Baer Jr. Not to be confused with Max Baer, who was the killer in the 1930s, who was depicted in the movie Cinderella Man. Uh, and Max Baer Jr. is his son, Jethro. No, not Jethro Tull. Jethro Clampett. Yeah, Emmy May's... Uh, brother, yeah. Well, anyway, I, I, yeah, this is all fascinating, I'm sure, but we can maybe read the Bible and learn about another Jethro. Here we go. Exodus 18. Let's do this thing. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian and father-in-law of Moses, heard of everything God had done for Moses and for his people Israel and how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. How he heard, we're not sure. Perhaps it was when Moses had sent Zipporah and his two sons to go and be with Jethro. Why did he send them? Uh, It's a a speculative question by many people over the centuries. But most think that it was either to, in a sense, spare them from what Moses anticipated to be a radical showdown of demonic proportions, which it was, as God took down all of the idols and demons of Egypt to be able to release his people, no small thing required the fist of God. And perhaps Moses wanted to spare a wife and child from all of the absolute war that would go on in the midst of that. Or perhaps it was to go and get Jethro uh, and have Jethro come and join them as he is quite a wise man. Either way, it's, it's probably something in those areas. Anyway, it says, after Moses has sent away his wife Zipporah, his father-in-law Jethro received her and her two sons. One son was named Gershon, uh, which, which means a, uh, a sojourner or a foreigner. Uh, and because he says, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer. God is my helper. For he said, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. Amen. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, together with Moses' sons and wife, came to him in the wilderness, where he was camped near the mountain of God. Jethro had sent word to him, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. And, and many here also have speculated, he hasn't seen his wife and his kids in so long. Why is he coming to the father-in-law? It doesn't seem to be kind of what would go down today, that if you haven't seen your wife and kids, you've been on deployment, that as you come home onto the pier, the first person that you're going to run to is your father-in-law. Maybe not the case, but it was such a patriarchal society. And of course, this is written at a time where that did actually inform the, the way that anybody would describe these matters, that you have the interaction going this way. Moses told his father-in-law, verse 8, about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. 
Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel and rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh, who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, that seems to be reiterated quite a bit, brought a burnt, and I'll explain why in a minute, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties to inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses's father-in-law replied, what you're doing is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way that they are to live and how they are to behave. But select capable men from all the people. Men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Let them serve as judges for the people at all times, but let them bring every difficult case to you, simple cases they can decide themselves. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this, and God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain, and all these people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law, did everything he said. He chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Jethro has some uh, pretty, pretty important advice here. Uh, for for any group that is going to serve God and in any way. But it's interesting that the information that he gives and the instruction that he provides is within an Old Testament context. And as we have the context so far, we've got Moses single-handedly doing quite a bit of stuff for Israel. Think about all that has gone on so far. Not, not only has he been the one that has had the showdown with Pharaoh, not has he, has he been the one that has had to calm the people as they begin to grumble against God, not only is he the one who throws the branch into the water of Marah so that they could become drinkable again, not only is he the one that raises his staff and, and is able to bring about the manna from heaven and the quails that come, not only is he the one that is able to strike the rock with the staff and bring about water for all of the people, not only is he the one, if he's raising his staff against the Amalekites, are they winning the battle? Again, these are not military geniuses down below him. These are a bunch of bricklayers and slaves that just suddenly were, were delivered not knowing anything about about martial arts at all or, or anything of war. And, and if he raises his staff, they're winning. If he lowers his staff, it lowers, it, it, they, they, they lose. I mean, think like it all depends on him. 
And, and this has kind of been ingrained into him for all of the events that have gone on right now. And now as it comes time to be able to deal with all of the internal matters of Israel, it's no wonder that Moses kind of has this model as, as, as he settles in to, to be able to deal with all of the people. You've got three million people and you've got Moses and apparently a really helpful microphone so that he's able to handle all the disputes for three million people. And, and of course, any model built on the cult of personality of a central figure who can so captivate the people, that is a model destined for failure, destined for humanism and destined to be ungodly. And so Jethro quickly comes and says, we got to disperse this because for one thing, you're wearing yourself out. For another, you're wearing the people out because they're getting frustrated. And on another thing, nobody is satisfied at the end of the day with a model that looks like this. And we're going to talk about this from Jesus's perspective and how it is that he structures the, the body of Christ the work of Christ in the New Testament. So let's, but let's look at, at Jethro and his, his is, you know, quite, quite obvious and, and quite insightful is that instead of that model, what if it looked more like this? What if you had one person for all of the millions, one person to maybe consult with 10 people to be their spiritual advisor, to discern the Lord's will, to be able to help advise between contentious cases. And if anything gets to be too crazy, well, we'll bump it up a level to a, to a level of 50, to a level of 100, to a level of 1,000. And then if it really is just such a difficult case, well, then that's the one that you'll bring to Moses. All right, brilliant strategy. Jethro lays it out. Very important advice. And, and, and amen. It is one of the, the great reasons why it is that three million people can actually be herded through a desert for 40 years so effectively and then deployed as they cross the Jordan River and organized into the 12 tribes and all of the territories. If this was all happening because one guy among three million is yelling instructions to them, there is no way that this would have ever actually happened with all of the amazing organization that had occurred. Again, keep in mind, three million people. We just came back from tours of Greece and Turkey. We saw the great city of Ephesus, one of the largest cities, many, about 2,000 years after the events that are going on here. Such a large city, but that large city was still a city of, of maybe, I don't know, 250,000 people. That's like one of the really, really big cities of the Roman Empire, 250,000. That's eclipsed by 3 million people that are actually just simply sojourning, that are, that are tabernacling, that are, that are temporarily dwelling all throughout and are going to settle into many, 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 many cities. And the, the great principle of delegation, of, of recognizing that if we are to really be effective at doing the work of God, then we've all got to look at how it is that we could put our hand to the work of God as it's laid out here. And, and the beautiful part about it is at the end of the day, many are trained, many are raised up, many are equipped. So many recognize that they have a special purpose for God. All, all of the, the people that are able to get greater attention are benefited. All of the people that have new responsibilities and those responsibilities suit them, likewise are benefited because they feel the significance of God. And at the end of the day, there is not only harmony, but thriving among the people of God. 
So, again, great principle, but let's, um, let's take a look at this from the perspective of Jesus. So here is Jesus at the end of his ministry career, Matthew 28. And in Matthew 28, we, we know quite well that as they gathered at the mountaintop, there were 11 that gathered. Uh, they, they, they believed in him, but some even doubted at this point in time. And now Jesus, in his final instructions for the simplicity and elegance and power of the body of Christ and the work of Christ, now not contained to just a single people, but now God's desire, as it has always been, that he would take the seed of promise given to Abraham, entrusted to Isaac, brought forth into Jacob, then through Joseph, then through God's people, incubated there in Egypt, then sent forth that that this great promise that you will be a blessing to all nations has come to this beautiful point in Jesus, the great representative of the steward of that promise. And that promise that he now has is now realized in such greater ways than anyone in the Old Testament could have ever, ever fathomed. As a matter of fact, all those that served, all those names that I just mentioned, they never received all that was promised to them. Only through those that Jesus were about to equip. Only through those where Jesus is now about to show, here's how the structure of God's people will now be. His treasured possession will now work this way. All those in the Old Covenant could only look on with encouragement to say, Ah, this is what we lived and died for. This is what we prophesied about. This is what we lay down our lives to be able to maintain. Now we can see it in God's people. No longer do they wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them so that they could exercise the administrative functions of the body of Christ. Now the Holy Spirit has been given to them dwells within them, an indwelling of the divine in all people. And Jesus now explaining the way that it's going to work, of course, then then says in, in Matthew 28, 19, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me. And then looking to those 11, he says, go therefore and make disciples. The, the, in the original language, there's not like a command make and an object disciples. It's, it's make disciples is a verb. It's one verb. It's discipleize, right? Go, go discipleize all the peoples of the earth. Discipleize the nations. How do you do that? Well, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them, training them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Amen. And I'll be with you. All through that. I'll be with you always through all of that. And so Jesus does. And those 11 then become beautiful replicas, beautiful followers of him. The key phrase that Jesus brings to all those that would be part of his new structure, his new plan, his elegant process is that I now call you to follow me. Akalatheo is the word that is captured by the Holy Spirit in the pages of the New Testament. Again and again and again, as Jesus calls people to follow him. No casual term. A matter of fact, an extremely technical term. We've talked about it at different times. But it bears repeating because I want us 
as we come to this important structure of God's work in the Old Testament, realizing the fulfillment of it, the manifestation of it in the New Testament, this is not just for our interest to see how wise Jethro was, but to see how Jesus transcends even the shadow of delegation that Jethro had put into place. Because the work of Christ was going to be so much more remarkable. Now it is not just those that will be over thousands and fifty thousands and hundreds and fifties and tens. Now Jesus says, everybody. Everyone's a judge. Everyone's a priest. Everyone's a prophet. Because everyone is going to be discipleized and trained to obey everything that I've commanded even you original 11. So just as Matthew, Mark, Peter, John, James, Andrew, Bartholomew, just as they have all gathered right here, just as we look at what has been brought in three years of intensive training to these men, if Jesus' plan is to work, then they are really following him, and we find that, my goodness, are they not? Matter of fact, they actually make it throughout all the known world, all around the Mediterranean basin. They actually give their lives for the cause of Christ. When they hear, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Well, these are not just nice suggestions, advice of a Jethro to maybe consider. These are the words of God in Christ, of of God the Son. Imparting upon them, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. This follow me is then extended to all people. This teach them to command all things because as as these then head out, these 11 head out to to go and again, discipleize the nations. And Jesus, you know, ascends after that. (laughs) Quite impressive, by the way. Uh, As as let's say uh, Andrew makes his way to, to be able to discipleize the places where he goes. Again, he's not going to use a model of preacher and audience. A model of priest and, and those looking to be served by the priest as, as ones that are needing some sort of a connection to God through some sort of a man. It's, it's no longer the case. Jesus has blown that up. We are now all a nation of priests, a nation of prophets, a kingly nation. This is the model that Jesus has. And for anyone sitting here that thinks that you are to be any bit different from Andrew or Peter or James or John, well then, you signed up for a form of Christianity that just does not exist. Because the elegant, powerful plan of Jesus works Because what Andrew, if this is Andrew here, does is he doesn't create a bunch of second tier Christians. He creates Christians that obey everything that he has been taught. He trains them, trains them. Again, it's not as though, all right, I'm going to go out and I have a bunch of altar calls. And I'm going to convict people about the grace of God, the sin in their lives, bring them forth and have them pray Jesus into their heart. Garbage, garbage, garbage. Nothing like that happens anywhere in the pages of Scripture. It's one of the horrid, horrid heresies that has undermined what Christianity is supposed to look like. 
But here's the deal, because it's what modern Christendom looks like in America. It can squeeze us into its mold. We can take these little half steps of assuming, oh, that's what Christianity is. I show up at church for Sunday. Maybe I take a note or two. I clap at the right times. Oh, it's that weird church where they shout out at people. Well, I'll endure that. Uh, it got like spiritual Tourette's there where they just kind of blurt out things from time to time. I don't know what that is, but I don't know. You know, I seem to be enriched. Uh, that, that is in no wise, no way at all Jesus' plan that he lays out to be able to deploy the divine everywhere. Jesus' plan, as he lays it out, is that there is no corruption in the replication from one to the next to the next to the next. And and really, if if at anything, I think as any of of you who are younger are learning from anyone who is older, you need to look at us and say, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that, but old man. But you know what? I think I'm going to like step this thing on up. You know what? I, I see you kind of like slowing down a half step. Well, not any longer. How about, yes, thanks for what you've given me, but I'm, I'm going to get back to the pages of Scripture and let me take this thing and go. I want to go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God, what Jesus commands us in, in Luke 9. I want to deny myself, take up the cross, and follow Jesus. I want to be an actual replication of the real plan of Jesus Christ to be able to see Christianity spread. And again, any of us who is sitting here who has decided in any way not to obey everything that I have commanded you, right? That, that Jesus has commanded to the, the, uh, the 11. If, if we in any way have said, yeah, that's pretty good, but I'm going to filter that a bit for my life. Well, you suddenly decided to exit out of Jesus being Lord of your life. And you also opted out for the glory and the significance of being part of his brilliant plan. Because his plan is brilliant until someone, anyone, many ones decide that obey everything is no longer the very path of our lives. And and I don't want us to just kind of look at this casually. I want us to really think for ourselves, not for, oh man, I'm so glad this person's here today. Bag that. Every one of us, me, I'm, I'm having to tremble as I consider this. Am I going to be part of Jesus' plan? Right? We're, we're not a church that puts all of our effort into a building, although praise God that we've got this. We're not a church that puts a lot of effort into our, our song ministry, although we've got that. But we don't have the smoke machines. We don't have the lasers. We don't have the expensive equipment. Right? <coughs> we, we don't put our effort into the website. We don't put our effort into all those things that are great seeker-friendly things. But hey, if we did, that would be great too. But the reason that we don't is because we decide that the thing that we're going to do is that we are going to pour ourselves into the next person as I follow and obey everything that Jesus has commanded and so to help them to do nothing less than that and that I will never faithlessly lower my expectations for anyone in my small group. Never lower my expectations for anyone with whom I have a discipling relationship. And actually consciously, deliberately decide, this is what it was for Philip and Bartholomew, but this is all it's going to be for you. So as we have one another relationships, I'm not going to aspire to see you actually live it out the way that 
those 11 lived it out. God forbid if we let that come into our consciousness. If we let that come into the way that we practice Christianity. This is Christianity. One another relationships, calling one another to obey everything that Jesus has commanded us. He's already delivered us. He's already baptized us into his blessing, into his promises. Why then the commands? Aren't we already saved? Those commands are what we embrace out of the gratitude that has been given to us. Those commands are what make us holy. Those commands are what make us unique and a city on a hill compared to the rest of the world. Those commands allow others to know what Christianity looks like. If he did not guide us through the obeying of everything, well then, my goodness, we would so easily become easy prey to the the passions and the pleasures of this age. Praise God that he has not just delivered us, but he has also made our lives count for something great. We are his workmanship created in him to do good works that he has prepared beforehand for us to walk in. Praise God we get to walk in greatness rather than just show up on a Sunday passively to fill a seat and make it look like the first two rows are empty or versus full uh, while we're here. Praise God that that's not your purpose. Praise God too that you guys sat in the first two rows. As well. But praise God... That that is not the Christianity, although it's the Christianity I grew up with, by the way. It is exactly the Christianity that I grew up with. The depth and degree of the Christianity that I grew up with was, was quite traditional. And it informs my senses too much. Where, oh, I don't want to go. But if I really want to say that I'm a Christian, I probably should show up for church on Sunday. That should be the least of what we do. I mean, you should, I mean, literally, if you have the picture of an iceberg in your head, that's the tip of the iceberg. What goes on under the surface? What goes on in your daily devotion? What goes on in your love for Christ? What goes on in your outreach to those that need to know Jesus? What goes on in your counseling of one another? What goes on in your rearranging of your resources to make a bigger difference in the world? All of that is what's below the surface. All of that is so much more significant than just kind of popping it on here. For your, your hour and a half on a, on a Sunday morning. Oh please. Let's blow up that concept. That's the, the Moses in the crowd. That's the preacher in the crowd. That's the have an altar call. And let's hope that you now praying Jesus in your heart. Makes you feel warm and fuzzy. And that somehow that will actually equal Christianity. Does not equal. If you are not actively involved. In a beautiful discipling relationship. Then I don't think you are actually running after Jesus. In the way that he has actually arranged for all of us to live out Christianity. But, amen. Those 11 weren't content with a bunch of altar call uh, responders. They were content with only those that were discipleized. Discipleized by being taught and trained to obey everything. And when that happens, when, when, when Andrew replicates himself everywhere that he goes and they replicate themselves and they replicate themselves and they replicate themselves. Oh my goodness. Unstoppable of, of what the effect of that really, really will be. And, and, and as we appreciate 
the, the depth of, of God's plan here, I, I think likewise we've got to appreciate what every one of those people responding is deciding to do. In Mark 8.34, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, I've already mentioned this, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Amen. Deny himself. Life is no longer about me. Praise God I have a bigger yes. Praise God I have a transcendent purpose. It's no longer about me trying to conjure up my own vision or mission statement for how I'm supposed to make my life a little bit special. It's already been given to me and given to me by no less than Jesus of what it is that is my raison d'etre, my reason for being, my great purpose in life. As, as uh, Steve Martin said in The Jerk, I found my special purpose. You found your special purpose. And that's all I need. Old people reference. Old people laughter. Now, this call to deny yourself, it's the only normal response for one who has recognized that we are compelled by Christ's love. Because we are convinced that he died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.14 And dying for us, we recognize that we now, who live, no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and was raised again. And that, that section of scripture in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15 concludes with this phrase. And now we no longer live for ourselves. When you think about your week coming up, and maybe you make a plan for the week, I don't know how all of this works in your life, but is it more about self? Or is it more about how Jesus can be glorified? How you can express your gratitude for Jesus throughout all of the things that end up on your weekly agenda. One of the things that often shocked me as I was a uh, campus minister at ODU and, and one of the chaplains there is, you know, I'd study the Bible with lots of folks that were a lot of incoming freshmen. And one of the things that I would ask them who were excited and proclaiming Christianity and wanted to get involved in a, in a discipleship program and to see their faith really burgeon through that. And one of the questions I would often ask is, why did you choose ODU? And of all the people that, that, that came up, I would say almost none of them said, because this is where I felt I could best serve Jesus. To be your Christian. Like it, it hasn't even come up. And why you chose ODU. You know, I love, you know, all of our teens are, are sitting over here. We've got some uh, campus students that are, that are back from the holidays hanging out with us as well. Now, here's the beautiful thing is, I know that as, as you're deciding on colleges, as you decided on colleges, that there was one thing at the top of the list that filtered everything else. And it was, where can I serve Jesus best? Where can I be trained to be of better use to my master? Where can I be deployed while I'm there to make a big difference and help other people come to know Jesus? Number one on the list, strong campus ministry that really does practice first century biblical discipleship of Christ. Number one criterion, deterministic criterion of all that they had. And yes, there were other salient criteria, you know, whether they had a good engineering school or price or state school, all of those things came in, but none of those had any chance of being able to can't think of another word. Trump, uh, the, 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 other, the, the other issue that, that was, do they have a strong campus ministry? But that's what it means 
to deny yourself. The big decisions in your life, what job you take, where you live, where you go to school, whom you marry, all of those things are now informed by Jesus, are now a great expression of Jesus. If, if that is not who we are, then we become part of just the crowd waiting to hear a Moses shouting a thing or two and maybe feeling good about the fact that, oh, I think I heard Moses and I'm, I'm kind of, you know, herding around with the rest of the crowd. That is not what we signed up for. But it's where we fade back to every day if we are not alert and aware, deliberate and intentional about living out our Christianity. Let this call to push out the delegation, push out the work of God through Jethro, be a call to us to recognize not only do I deny myself, not only do I take up my cross, that was a clear call to revolution. Jesus died on a cross. It was the number one crime uh, that, that actually was prosecuted by a cross. Was being a revolutionary, you ended up on a cross. And he also happened to end up on a revolutionary cross on the day of revolution. Jesus ended up on the cross on Exodus Day, on Passover, on the day of deliverance, on the day of liberation, the great day of revolution from, free, from bondage in Egypt is the day that Jesus chose to die as a revolutionary. And he says to all, and by the way, you too, you too take up your cross. You too live as such countercultural revolutionaries. Not political, not social, but spiritual. Yes. And, and by the way, if that, you think that doesn't have a consequence, all 11 of these guys who heard him say this, except for, for, for John, all of them died in some form of, of uh, persecution. Most on crosses, but by the way. Uh, so when they heard, deny yourself, take up your cross, not theory, not hypothetical, this is the way they lived their lives. They were replicas of Jesus and they went out because they obeyed everything he commanded them. And those that he, they taught, they taught them to obey everything that was commanded them. And those that they taught, the same, the same, the same. Let's just suppose that those 11 made 100 disciples a year. And by the close of the New Testament... Right, we're around maybe 64 AD. I mean, then we've got Revelation and John later. But the close of the events of the New Testament in the book of Acts. When you see at the end of the book of Acts, the, the close of all of the events. And again, it's, it's zoomed in, of course, on the work of Peter and then Paul. But all of the 11 went all over the place. And when, when scholars look at how many, what was the population of real Christians by the, the end of, of 64 AD when... By the way, Christian persecution was, was really flaring. What was the population of Christians in the Roman Empire? Well, if those 11 made 100 disciples a year in the Moses pattern versus the Jethro pattern, in the Moses pattern, it's the preacher who does all the work and keeps building a crowd, right? In, in that pattern, those 11 make 100 disciples a year. Well, in, in year one, then there's 1,100. In year two, 2,200. And, and so on and so on. By the end of 64, there were somewhere around 33,300 disciples, right? If, if it's just simply the model that has so captivated Christianity today of, of a charismatic leader gathering a big crowd, seeing how many he can add year after year after year, 
Again, if you can add a hundred and a hundred and a hundred, and all eleven of them did that, thirty-three thousand. That's pretty good, you know. In in, in thirty years, to have thirty-three thousand new followers of Jesus. But that's not how many there were. There were one million by the close of the New Testament. How is it that it got to one million? Because they didn't follow the Moses model. They followed not just even the Jethro model. They followed the Jesus model. The elegant, powerful, foolproof model of you're a disciple. You're a disciple. You're a disciple. You obey everything he's taught. You obey everything he's taught. And as you train, you have expectations for every person that God has put into your life. People that he's given you to love and to train. That your aspirations are nothing less than obeying everything that Jesus has commanded us. I know this is familiar ground, but familiarity breeds contempt. This familiarity needs to captivate us. This familiarity is our lifeblood of being the body of Christ. This is what we need to be. This is where we need to head. In the, in the new year, on January 1, we begin our study of the book of Acts. As we look at after Jesus ascended, what did it look like as the body of Christ was structured and arranged and, and operated. That's what we want to aspire to. Let's not wait until then. Let's decide, even now, as we look at this call to push out responsibility, to recognize that you are a chosen race. This is what Peter said. after Near the end of his life, having served 30 years after Jesus ascended, and said to him, you go and teach everyone to obey everything I've commanded you. This is what Peter is able to say in a letter that was spread widely amongst all the churches. It's called one of the universal letters in 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is what he says. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You don't need... To be relying upon a priest, a preacher, a prophet, a king of any sort. What we need to do is push this back. Flatten the model of what we're meant to be as the body of Christ. Everyone a priest. Everyone a prophet. Everyone engaged. Everyone obeying everything that Jesus has commanded. Everyone training the next person to obey everything that Jesus has commanded. Never lowering expectations for ourselves or for anyone else. And when that happens, the inescapable conclusion of it all is, is that we then bring Jesus to a world that needs to hear him. And everyone that hears it then becomes part of the process. Jesus' brilliance. They then, transformed by his love, can't help but do the same to head out and share this with everyone else. And so, the simple conclusion to today, re-engage Re-engage in the plan of discipleship. Take it out of the back burner. Bring it out front. Is there a person that you're engaged with some sort of discipleship with in your life? Great. Then sit down with them and say, time to get back on path. Obeying everything. Expectations for obeying everything. Uh, You know what? I'm not there. And and I bet every one of us can say that. I can say that. This is what I want to sit down and, and make sure is the case for my life. Is that I'm not there, but time to get back. To nothing less than that. Nothing less than the sweetness of significance that Jesus has given us for our lives. 
And if you don't have someone that you're in that kind of relationship with, then please grab someone here. Really solidify it. Live out the one another scriptures that we've been blessed with in the New Testament. This is not an individual sport. This can only happen in community. All of this is only in the context of community. We are gathered into a community to have this many people that are this excited about exactly the plan of Christ. Rigorous, high call, obey everything. Doesn't get more radical than that. To to have that as the high call and to be amongst people like that, my goodness, we are blessed. Let's not get out of here until we have grabbed on to someone that is going to be like-minded with us, pursuing nothing less than Jesus' great plan, Jesus' great gift that he's given to all of us. Amen. We're dismissed to the fellowship and to connect with one another. Thank you.